Welcome to episode number 90 of Tangentially Speaking. <clears throat> Amazing. I can't believe we're pushing 100 with this thing. But uh, very happy that we are. Glad you're here with me. This week is uh, Caitlin Doty. She was on once before. She was on episode 25 back in the archives. She is amazing. She is a mortician. You can see her if you uh, go to YouTube and look at Ask a Mortician. She's, uh, she's super smart. She's sexy. She's articulate. She's funny. She's fearless. She's one of my favorite people. And she's got a book coming out this week uh, called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is hilarious and very well made. I've got to say, I, you know, as an author, it makes me happy to hold a book that's a beautiful piece of material. You know, it's got a really nice cover. It's well put together. It's a beautiful book. Um, if you're interested in death, if you're interested in the way American culture, uh, pathologizes death, if that makes sense. You know, we make it, we take this thing that's a part of life just as much as sex or food or all these other things, and we we make it into a sickness, although it sounds weird to call death a sickness, but uh, we pathologize parts of life that make us uncomfortable, and um, we do that with death. And so we we hide it, and by hiding it, we deny ourselves the opportunity to become familiar with it. And so like the the monster you run away from in your dreams, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier. And the only way to ever defeat these monsters, whether they're in our dreams or in our waking life, is to turn around. Turn around. You don't run away from a mountain lion. You don't run away from a grizzly bear. And you don't run away from the knowledge of your own mortality. You turn around and you face that shit. And you make yourself look as big as possible. And you at least pretend you're not afraid. And i tell you, brothers and sisters, 99 times out of 100, that monster will fucking disappear. That bear will stop in its tracks. That monkey will not attack you. If you ever, if you read Sex at Dawn, it opens with my account of a monkey um, uh, getting ready to attack. And uh, yeah, some instinct kicked in. And instead of turning and running away, I became a big fucking monkey and started jumping up and down and frothing at the mouth. And I just went primate on his ass and it stopped him in his tracks. He had no idea that was going to happen. And it changed the dynamic of our little encounter. And so that's what I'm saying about death. You got to you got to turn, face it, and go primate on that shit. Get real. Of course, you're going to fucking die. We're going to die one day. You're going to die one day. Listen to that song, that beautiful song by Carsey Blanton, Smoke Alarm. You're going to die one day. So live today. Live today. Anyway, Kate and Doty, she's wonderful. And her book is Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Uh, if you've got the cash and you've got the interest, I would very much encourage you to go out and buy that book this week. If you have any intention, if you think you're going to buy it, please buy it this week because if you get that concentrated 
uh, those those good numbers in the first week or two after your book comes out, then it rolls from there. Then you get the media attention. Then maybe you get on the New York Times bestseller list. This happened with us, thanks to Dan Savage. Once you've got a book on one of those lists, or at least you've, you're selling enough that major media is going to start picking up and, hey, what is this? Hmm, a book about death. That's interesting. By a funky young mortician. Then you've got momentum. And if it's a good book, which this one is, I guarantee you, then it's going to keep rolling and rolling and rolling. And this is a person that we need to be prominent uh, in the national conversation about death because it's one of those things that we need to get real about. Death, drugs, sex, all the good stuff, all the juicy, crazy, somewhat uncomfortable stuff. We need to get real because we're running out of time. I think we all know that. But before we get to Kate and Caitlin, um, I thought I'd rant a little bit about what's going on in the news this week. We've got, uh, you know, more outrage. The outrage machine keeps pumping it out. Uh, of course, we've got the Bruce Levinson situation. He's the owner of the the Atlanta something or other, the Atlantic Hawks, the Atlanta... You know, the basketball team in Atlanta. I don't remember what the fuck they're called. But anyway, he uh, wrote an email a couple years ago in which he said, uh, you know, I think the reason we're not selling as many season tickets as, as we'd like to is that the people who buy season tickets tend to be middle-aged white dudes, uh, rich middle-aged white dudes. And... Our games are very much targeted toward a black audience. All the cheerleaders are black. Um, all the music we play is hip hop, kind of, you know, associated with the black culture. And, you know, 70 or 80% of the people at the games are black and all that, right? And I think that what's happening, he said, is that our target audience for the season ticket sales, these rich middle aged white guys, are kind of uncomfortable in that environment. They feel uncomfortable because they're like a minority in this environment. So what I'd suggest is, you know, we get a few white women in the cheerleader ranks and, you know, we play some music that's not hip hop and sort of like, you know, create an environment where they're going to be a little more comfortable. Anyway, that's all he said. Okay. He didn't say he was uncomfortable. In fact, he went out of his way to say he himself was never uncomfortable at the games. And, um, there's nothing bad about being uh, oriented toward black culture. He was just saying, let's be more inclusive of the white people because we need to get these white people to buy our season tickets. Anyway, this is being described in media as a racist email. Now, at the worst, what he did was recognize that there might be some effect of racism in the fact that these Southern white dudes might not be comfortable in a stadium where 70% of the people are black and all the music and all the cheerleaders and everything else is black, that that might be at work in this economic uh, decision, you know, in, in orienting and selling these tickets. That's the worst possible reading of his email that I can come up with. And even then, all he's doing is acknowledging that there may be racism in Atlanta, Georgia. In what world is this news? In what world is this racism? It's bullshit. 
I, I don't see racism in there at all. If it were the opposite, if it were a predominantly white environment and you wanted to get black people to come in and you said, you know, hey, why don't we why don't we put some hip hop? You know, enough of this Lawrence Welk shit or, you know, whatever, you know, uh what's a what's a really good example of white music? Counting crows or something? I don't know. Anyway, enough of this white music. Let's let's get some black music in here. Let's uh let's get some black women in the cheerleaders. Why are all the cheerleaders white? We'd look at that and we'd say, well, that's a progressive, inclusive, intelligent person. But when you go the other way, not excluding anyone, but trying to include more, trying to make something more inclusive, that's racism. What the fuck is going on? Other weird things going on. This Ray Rice situation. So, dude beats his wife. Obviously, if you see the tapes, they're drunk and you know they're just in a drunken, belligerent couple nightmare she's slapping him he's spitting at her all this weird shit and then they're in the elevator and he pops her in the face and she's unconscious and he's dragging her out of the elevator so the first video that came out is him dragging her out of the elevator and he admitted that he had punched her and she was unconscious and that's why she was unconscious that's a two-game suspension then the video comes out of him actually punching her and now it's indefinite well Okay, first of all, that's fucked up because he already told you he punched her. So what changed between now and then? The only thing that changed is there's a video. So now we're in this world where, you know, if I say I murder puppies, that's going to have one sort of level of repercussion. But if there's a video of me murdering puppies, that's a whole different thing. Now, I'm sorry, whether the video's there or not, reality is reality right he punched his girlfriend in the elevator and you know that's it so if him punching his girlfriend is a punishable offense then punish him but a video of him punching his girlfriend doesn't change anything about the situation that we're supposedly responding to all it changes is some public perception and that's bullshit you can't legislate based on public perception of reality, you got to legislate based upon reality, right? Otherwise, what are we going to say? It's, you know, if you kill someone, it's, uh, you know, five to 10 years in prison. But if there's a videotape of it, it's 20 to 30 years in prison. Is that is that where we're going? Is that the legal system we're talking about here? And anyway, on an even deeper level, she married the guy. And so what we're doing by punishing him is we're punishing her, as she very explicitly said in a in a tweet or a Instagram thing or something. She said, "Look, if you're trying to destroy us and humiliate us, and and wipe out my husband's career, that's exactly what you've done. Thank you very much." So, in what world are we helping this woman? Right? In what world is all this public condemnation and hand wringing and yelling and screaming helping her? There's this whole thing about, you know, oh, like women who who have trouble leaving their abuser. And I know that's a real thing. I just, there's no question about that. And I don't mean to downplay or minimize the pain and the difficulty of that sort of situation. But I do think that destroying the career of the man that this woman married after that event, by the way, 
is not empowering to her. And I also think that removing her from the conversation about what sort of repercussions there should be is not empowering to her. In fact, it's disempowering to her. What we're saying to her is, we have to destroy you in order to save you. Which is pretty much what we said to Vietnamese for about 10 years there in the 60s. And what we're saying to a lot of Iraqis and soon-to-be Syrians and Yemenis and Afghanis and Pakistanis and uh, a lot of people all over the world. The message is, America is here to save you, uh, but the side effects of that saving may be utter destruction and death. Sorry, that's just the way we roll. And then you've got the Adrian Peterson situation, He plays for the Vikings. Apparently, he uh, punished his four-year-old son, spanking him or beating him or whatever the word is with a switch, you know, a a thin branch, like a whip sort of thing. Now, again, I'm not going to say that that that's defensible. Um, On the other hand, interesting how we focus on some sorts of damage and not others, potentially much more damaging, much more lasting damage. For example, I don't know of anyone being prosecuted for indoctrinating their children into a worldview in which God hates you for touching yourself, in which masturbation leads you to everlasting hell, in which having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend when you're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, but not married, is a shameful, dirty, disgusting criminal act. I don't know anybody who's being prosecuted for filling their kids' heads with that. And I know a lot of adults, 20, 30, 40 years out of childhood, who are still suffering from that shit. Now, maybe this four-year-old kid will be suffering in 30 years from the emotional trauma of his dad beating him with this stick. I, I don't know. But I know for certain that there are a lot of emotional, psychological wounds that we completely permit parents to inflict on kids and nobody raises a finger or says a goddamn thing. So anyway, that's my rant. Hypocrisy wins another one. Mentioning race makes you a racist. And we're going to destroy your husband and your marriage in order to save you because we've decided he's an abuser, but only after we saw the videotape of him abusing you, not when he just told us, admitted that that's what he'd done to you. I'm not going to do any sponsors this week. The only begging I will do is what I've already done. Encourage you to buy Caitlin's book, Smoke It's In Your Eyes. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, you could go to chrisryanphd.com and go through the Amazon link there on the on the right side in the right margin. Click through that, and whatever you buy at Amazon will get a two or three percent of whatever you spend. So even if if you get the book and then you decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to get a five hundred dollar massage chair too. Perfect, that'll work out really well for us. Uh, That's a way of sending money. Anytime you go to Amazon, if you click through uh, chrisryanphd.com, we'll get a little percentage of whatever you spend. It doesn't cost you anything extra, so that's pretty cool. Amazon can afford it. Um, 
other than that, I'm not going to do any sponsors this week. Uh, I think I, I, I get tired of, of trying to sell you stuff. I really appreciate you listening. I appreciate you telling your friends about the podcast. I appreciate those of you who have signed up for premium um, subscription uh, at Libsyn. Um, you can, if you want to do that, just uh, you can go to uh, Libsyn tangent libsyn.tangent.com i think is the way it is um or you can just go to chris ryan phd and you'll see a button that says uh get premium content or something and that'll take you there um so this week no more sponsors just caitlin you know i don't do this often you probably have never heard me do this because i don't think i ever have um you know because a lot of people come on the podcast are writers and and uh well i talked about uh dennis McKenna's book, which I really enjoyed. Um, so, you know, I won't bullshit you. If if I have someone on and they've written a book and I haven't read it or I did read it and I didn't love it or whatever, you know, I'll just sort of slide right by it. But uh, Caitlin's a special case. You listen to the podcast and see how you feel about her voice and her perspective. I think you'll like it a lot. And if that leads you to go buy her book, that'll make me real happy. All right. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, have a great week, and remember, you're going to die one day. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am in Los Angeles on one of the hottest days of the year. It's infernal out there. And I'm sitting here with a woman who knows all about infernos, crematoriums, hot places, places where things are morbid and dead, and uh, but not unbeautiful. That's a great introduction. Is it? That okay. is a fantastic. Keep that. I just pulled that Keep right out of my ass. I, I, I it's can where all tell the best things come your from. eyes kind of glaze over in this really powerful way, and you just. Oh, I love when women say that to me. <laughs> and they all say it sooner or later. <laughs> sooner or later. Without the powerful way. Mm-hmm. Just your eyes glazed over, Chris. Uh, must be love. So I'm here with Caitlin, and uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will know that uh, this is our second uh, rodeo. Mm-hmm. When did we talk? Do you remember? It was, I think, a year ago, maybe? It might have been. I think it was longer than that. Longer than that. Well, yeah. time flies. It was before your podcast was a huge hit. Mm. So it's thanks to you that Yeah, as soon as everyone heard the Caitlin Doty episode, they yeah. were like, man. Well, no, that actually, you know, we're joking, but there's something to that. Uh, because what I really like about this podcast is that it gives me a chance to hang out and talk with people I find interesting, mm-hmm. you know? And you're definitely one of them, and I've got pretty eclectic interests, so there you go. Well, I liked the comments on it that were like, I pushed play not thinking I had any interest in this random girl, <laughs> but then I found myself continuing to listen. Oh, like, oh thank you? Like, yeah, yeah, you Well, because girl. like you secretly like death, you know, everybody's <laughs> secret. And that's what's so interesting about sort of the work that I do in general 
is that everyone's always like, well, you know, I find it really fascinating, but it's not for everyone. Yeah. You know, like they're, they have the specials. Well, I know it's not that they're special, but they really believe that they must be morbid Mm. and must have these interests that other people think are fucked up. But in reality, like everybody's super morbid, everybody's super weird, everybody wants this information. You know, th- that relates a lot to, to the sexuality stuff that I did in Sex at Dawn because I, we get a lot of emails, you just swap out the word sex for death, and it's the same thing. Like, okay, now, you know, I get it, but most people don't. And uh, also the sense that I thought I was sick. Yeah, yeah. Because on one hand, you want to tell people that they're not, maybe not the only ones who think this, but also that if they do think this, that it's totally not weird and that you totally have thousands, if not millions of people on board with you on this right. train to like sex positivity or death positivity yeah. and that, you know, join, join us, you know, we're is, all here. Is death positivity a thing or did you just pull, I, pull that out of your I ass? Pull, I pulled it out of my ass like a year ago. Oh, okay. So it's like, it's a thing in that it's another word that I made up. I like it. I that, like death um, positivity. And the idea, and then it's totally, you know, it's, it's blatantly stolen from sex positivity yeah, well, with the idea of like and you agree with me on this that we need a, a redo or a societal re-up on our, what our perception is of yeah. the role of sex and the role of death in our culture and that if we're looking at it as a as a positive force on our on our psyches that that's actually a probably a healthier way to look at it than just to assume that it's this negative monolith that's that's hurting us yeah yeah. I wonder if demise positivity would work better just because death also incorporates or includes war and mm-hmm. destruction and, you know, like all these these things that I do think we should avoid when possible, you know, murder and genocide and so on. But, hey, it's nine twelve, everybody. Yeah, We're hey. in the post-9-11 world. We're in a post-9-11 day. Yeah, actually. exactly. Yeah. Well, people really like the phrase death positive though yeah. I'd sort of, I sort of said it as a joke a couple of times and then I saw it being used completely you know as if it was a thing that I had started right. intentionally right but I think it's because there's something to be said about not only it being a little bit sexy in, in or sort of a little scandalous so people yeah. have to say wait what is that I don't yeah. know and yeah, they those have to are get two words that never go yes, together and they have to get indignant and then you can follow up with right. you know we're not saying that when your mom dies you're going to be like you know what no big deal I'm death positive all we're saying is that if you do some serious work on her death before she dies and you think about mortality and you think about what you want done with her dead body and you think about how you feel about your own death or whatever yeah. it is when she actually dies it can be a beautiful experience and it can be a better experience for you and you can focus on the death as opposed to being completely wrapped up in all the bullshit of fear yeah i don't you probably didn't hear this but a couple of months ago i did a podcast an unusual podcast where i just read a letter that somebody had left on my car no i didn't hear that one uh, it's Go pr- on. it pretty intense. Uh, all I, you know, I just did a little intro and then I read the letter and that was the end of it. Um, what happened was I get this letter. It's left on my car, just in an envelope. It says Dr. Ryan. And uh, so this wasn't like 
F you for parking. No, well, I thought it was when I saw the note on the car, like, or, you know, we're going to be doing construction on the road or whatever it was. But no, I opened the letter and it's uh, a a typed letter and it, it's from, I don't know, a man or a woman who is a vet, a veterinarian and talked about how um, he, let's just say he, I don't know if it was a he or she, but uh, how he um, had put to death many animals over the years as part of his work. You know, he did farm stuff and worked in zoos or something, I think. Anyway, um, so a lot of experience with death and how to put an animal to death as painlessly as possible and yada, yada, yada. And then it got into his mother had always said, I don't want to be a burden on anyone, and when my time comes, I want to have dignity and control, and yada, yada, yada. And the time came, and uh, it got a little complicated because his mother was uh, suffering from dementia, and it got to the point where he couldn't really communicate with her, like, Mom, is this the time? But they had this conversation, and... Um, well, you, you have to listen to it. I, I shouldn't paraphrase it so much because it, it's out there. But it was so fucking moving mm-hmm. um, because what he said was that from his research, helium was the best option because you don't suffer from oxygen panic um, if you're breathing helium, but your body starts to shut down, right? And, of course, that leads to the hilarious, you know, famous last words, you know, like, <laughs> goodbye, cruel world. Uh, <laughs> and actually, the writer made that joke in the letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm there. You know. Why was this left on your car? I, it, I, the only thing I can imagine is that somebody listens to the podcast and they knew through friends of friends or something where I lived and they figured. And in the letter, it said, like, I'm taking a chance, you know, I'm, I, I, I committed a crime legally um but was this in oregon this yeah it was left on my car in oregon but we don't know where it happened right, right. well because there are i mean oregon was the first state to yeah. pass death with dignity laws but dementia is not covered under that you have to be terminal you right. have to be and that's a doctor thing that's right? a doctor yeah. thing yeah you so have you a have doctor a, yeah. prescribes you a way to end your life if you're terminal yeah. um, and it's not considered suicide because it's it's just hastening something that's very painfully on its way right. already whereas dementia it's such a gray area yeah. because people with dementia my grandmother included my grandfather included live for six seven years Ooh. with debilitating dementia but their bodies are still taking a licking and keeping on ticking yeah so this this brings up the issue of like what is life what is death before i got the mic on you were asking me about the book i'm working on now it's called civilized to death and there's a a big focus on death in the book um oh good yeah that's wonderful yeah. I, mean, I can't i can't wait to well in in fact there's there's even a section called right now the working title i don't it's not a whole chapter but it's a section in a chapter is something like the the upside of infant mortality or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know where you're going with that, but I have my own opinions that agree with that. Yeah. Well, see, the th- I think, boy, just to get myself in even more trouble, I think the Nazis ruined a lot of things 
you know, because anything... Well, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. (laughs) But I mean, good things. Uh, I mean, good things. Good things. Things that, you know, like, okay, we took their uh, rocket technology and their rocket scientists, and that's, you know, the birth of NASA and the, you know, the flights to the moon. A lot of that came out of Nazi research. But... Anything they touched in terms of eugenics or, you know, any of the sort of medical scientific experiments that they did are verboten, you know. That data is not allowed and you can't even really, it's not even permissible to ask any similar questions. Well, because you only, I mean, all that I've heard about Nazi medical practices are like Dr. Mengele and like barbarism and just... Yeah, I mean, ethically they were horrible, you know, but... Ethically, not to equate Jewish people or gay people with rabbits, or but ethically, most medical research is horrible, you know, and that it causes un- untold suffering and for not uh, not always easily measurable value. But anyway, what the hell am I going off? Tangentially on the, speaking, <laughs> welcome to another edition. Um, but my point was one of the things I'm getting into in the book a lot, and it's an obvious point to someone like you, is that there's a big difference between prolonging life and prolonging death. And I think that so many, of, so much of what we do with our medical technology is we just make death take longer, and we we then drain it of its dramatic emotional beauty and import because you take something that should happen in a few days maximum and you spread it out over you know like you said five or six years ten years and then you don't even know when did that person die because you know my grandfather doesn't know me doesn't know anyone is that even him anymore or is that just his body and if it's just his body why does it really matter if it's alive or not and even beyond that, in the coming years, as the baby boomers get older, we do not have the resources right. to take care of them, right. either financially or physical presence of caregivers. We just don't have it. And as yeah. we get more and more afraid of death and talking about death, we get more and more afraid of even addressing that problem yeah. in any way. So we don't, we, I mean, we need palliative care, we need hospice care, we need death with dignity, we need all of these things, you know, a multi-pronged approach in place, and we just don't have it. We don't even have one prong. No, we have one prong. And when you, when you talk to doctors who work in it, they say kind of the same thing that climate scientists do, which is like, it's too late, man. You know, mm. we, we, there are things we can do and we should be trying, but in a lot of ways... It's too late. We missed our opportunity and our window to you implement mean to deal these with things. The, the to deal, baby yeah, to deal with, thing. yeah, to yeah. deal with the fact that we have this rapidly expanding medical technology and we're using it yeah. almost unchecked. And the money, uh, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, they will pay for very expensive medical procedures, but they won't pay for very cheap palliative care or um, home care. Like I was reading an article recently about this and the woman showed, I don't remember the statistics offhand, but it was something like 25% of all medical expenditures are spent in the last three months of life or yeah. something like that. So it's like, what are we doing? We're, we're doing you know quadruple bypass surgery on an 85-year-old woman who's got 
you know, the cancer and heart disease and, you know, all sorts of other, like, come on, yeah, come on, it, let her die a, already. A pacemaker with someone who has Alzheimer's or dementia. Like Dick Cheney. Yeah. <laughs> or it's just fucking evil. There's a guy who should be allowed to, you know, go out on an ice flow. Yeah, just push him out. <laughs> like, Goodbye, Dick. Yeah. Thank, for the final Thanks for time. your service to thanks the country. Thanks and good luck. Yeah. So you were talking about uh, how the death of a loved one can ultimately be a beautiful experience if you have already prepared for it. Yeah, right? if, if you've, you've already, already done the work, not only in your own life, and your because when people die, you can make it a lot about you. If somebody dies and you haven't dealt with death and mortality, it becomes, does this mean I'm going to die? <laughs> What does this mean? Yeah, you know, exactly. it's like, well, yeah, That's a great question. yeah, it means you're gonna die. Like, uh huh. Like, yeah. as I am, so you shall be. Yeah. Memento mori of the dead body. But if you've dealt with that, the people that I have experienced their death since I've done all of this intense work on my own understanding of mortality, it's really incredible how much I'm able to focus on that particular grief and that specific relationship with that specific person and grieving that specific loss as opposed to bringing all of my own shit into because, it. Because you are experiencing the death of that person as opposed to experiencing death itself. Yeah, and, and the and threat most of people, it. And yeah. most people in this culture right now aren't able to do that because naturally, if you go through your life experiencing very little death yeah. and very little threat to right. your own life right. when it does come up even if you really loved that person you have to look out for number one in a way and it's immediately going to shoot back to you yeah. and you know what does this mean for my own relationship with well and, and you're out of shape you oh know? yeah you're way out of shape the, so, the part of your brain that right. processes it is yeah. severely atrophied right you haven't gone to the gym in 50 years and then you've got to do some heavy lifting and yeah of course it's about you because your your pain isn't about the thing that you've experienced your pain is about how you are responding to it mm -hmm. yeah which is unfortunate and what what do you where, where do you locate this? What, what's going on here? Because this does seem to be something that is largely Western. Mm -hmm. um, but like many things that are Western, it seems to be particularly intense in American culture. Yeah. You know, like in Spain, where I've lived for years, one of the first things I noticed was when you go to the market... Um, you know, the meat market, there are animals there. Yeah. There are rabbits hanging up by their back paws with blood dripping out of their eyes. And, you know, old ladies will be like, you know, I'll take that one. And then, like, you'll screw, you know, rip the skin <laughs> off it and chop the head and everyone's standing there. And things that if you tried to do that in an American grocery store, you'd probably, you know, get arrested. And I don't know, like the children. Yeah, well, my work is basically centered around the absence of the corpse or the carcass, as you were just talking about, mm. being the central problem. So the complete absence of the dead body in a realistic way in our right. lives at all. You know, we have the weird um, blue-tinted young hot model CSI corpses uh -huh. uh, or, or like law and order corpses. Uh -huh. And we have zombies and we have all of these like, you know, very distant, not real corpses, but we don't have home wakes. We don't have um, the body in in our lives in a meaningful way anymore, or even 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 an unmeaningful way, even a, like in a plague body in the streets sort of way. We don't have the body, and 
I would argue that there's no better way to truly understand death than to actually see it up close and tangibly believe it and have the physical evidence that this yeah. is a dead body, it's changing, this person has left the building, they're not there anymore, you're not going to be there anymore, even if you believe that the soul is going somewhere, it's not in that body, and you can just tell. And the corpse is such a special thing, it's sacred and profane at the same time, and it's just missing. We've just taken it out of culture because of not only medicalization, but also because of the funeral industry, and the way that both of those have developed as industries. You know, yeah, you've just given me a good way to write uh, something in this this chapter I'm thinking about because your point is so it's so clear. If you if there's no corpse, you can't see death because absence is not the same thing as death. No, absence. You know, like I haven't seen you for over a year, but I never. You know, there was no grieving. There's no death, but absence of life in that body is what death looks like that and even then we don't really see death we see the absence of life it's always a reflected thing right mm-hmm. you can't really see death because death is the absence of something else mm-hmm. yeah yeah and if there's no body and, and so you're right they they we somehow it's it's been removed from our existence and the central really the central point of this book i'm working on is that by separating ourselves from death as much as possible what we've ended up doing is painting ourselves into this corner where we've separated ourselves from life Mm -hmm. right and so everyone's depressed and life has no meaning and yada 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 and the only people who have any meaning in life are you know off fighting in wars and then they come home and they're suffering from ptsd from the intensity of that compared to the drudgery of daily life now and it's just like what the fuck did we do yeah and there's something in the overwhelming American optimism and positivity that has totally failed us mm. as well. Yeah. The it's idea. never too late. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah. Sometimes it's too fucking <laughs> Sometimes late. Sometimes it's too late. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, climate scientists and medical ethicists will tell you that sometimes it's too yeah. fucking late. Yeah. And telling somebody to be happy or telling someone, death isn't that bad. Don't cry. Don't grieve. Don't worry about it doesn't work well it, it doesn't work to to do what you're trying to do which supposedly is relieve suffering right. what it does is prolong suffering it prolongs suffering and, yeah. it, and it makes the person feel like they're deviant or wrong right and it's a cover-up of emotions of all kinds emotions around sexuality emotions around death emotions yeah. around grief for every part of human life and saying don't feel those things we're optimists yeah we can work on through this is not doing anyone my my therapist who's a very wonderful older uh, woman from the netherlands said something about love specifically and she said caitlin you must understand that when you grow up in the netherlands post world war ii happiness is not promised to you and when she said that i was Damn, you're right, because when I grew up as a child in America in the 80s, happiness was absolutely promised to you. Right. It was in no way acceptable to have happiness not be a part of the plan. Yeah. And, I, and you know, here, here we all are, people of my generation, the millennials or whatever you want to call us, so many of us without 
viable jobs, so many of us who have missed the bus on long-term careers, so many of us with ennui and a general feeling of lack of meaning, which we know in so many ways can destroy a person from the inside out. Yeah. And because happiness was promised to us and wasn't delivered to us, and that leap and that, and that crash from that is devastating, and I don't know if we're going to be able to recover. Well, that's a pretty profound thing to say. What do you mean? You think your your generation is lost emotionally, psychologically? I think that it's going to take a lot to to because I think well, I also think just culturally that's the narrative, right? We've and and we do nothing if not believe in cultural narratives in this country. So if the cultural narrative is, ooh, sorry, like you were come, you were just starting to work right at the beginning of the recession and we didn't have any jobs for you and you kind of just got put out to pasture, now we're going to just deal with you as this gap from, oh, you know, 25 to 32-year-olds right. who will just never really get on the train. Yeah, sorry, we, we, we need to move on. Yeah, we need to move we on. Need we to need to look forward. Yeah, we need to look forward. People who are graduating from college right now in 2014, we're going to give them the fresh new jobs. And, mm. you know, the people are going to finally start to retire who couldn't do so during the recession. And we want right. fresh blood. Right. And we're just going to have to have you... You know, just, just sort of wander out, of out into the desert, basically, and that is that Oof, is the cultural narrative. That's heavy. And I don't know. I don't. I don't believe. I mean, I believe in my generation more than that, but it's hard to fight against that concept. And when you're being told that, and when it's being played out in the fact that you can't get, you can get a job, but it's not one that holds meaning to you. Right. Especially since when you were growing up in the 80s, it was do what you love. Right. You can be whatever you want you to be. You can be president. Be. You can be president. You yeah. can have all the dreams you want in the world. Yeah. You make your own self, princess. Yeah. You know, that's, in a strange way, that promise that parents and the culture gave to young kids and still do. Uh, is sort of the flip side of don't cry now, don't, don't, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, yeah. Because it's, it's well-intentioned on some level, but it ends up doing so much damage. Because, no, you can't be fucking president, yeah. right? No, <laughs> right. it is sometimes too late. Mm-hmm. No, get fucking real people, you know? And, and people think they're protecting their children by filling them with all this bullshit. You know, just like these lunatics in Mississippi think they're somehow, you know, stopping teen sex by refusing to talk about teen sex in schools. And no matter how often you point out that the teen pregnancy and STD rates are way higher there than they are in places where they do talk about it, that never gets through to people. It's so strange. And there are so many things culturally, and you know about this, that we know about humans that just repeat over and over and over again. Yeah. But we just insist on forgetting it yeah, exactly. every generation. Like we insist on like coming yeah. in and being like, well, you know what? I think if we just shut this down and just corral it in this little place and don't let it happen, it won't. Yeah, or, hey, I know, let's go bomb those terrorists in the Middle East. That'll work this time. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? I mean, that's not even generational. That's like every four or five years now. Like, oh. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay, this time it's going to work, though. Uh, Speaking of work, you were talking about doing this personal work to prepare for for death of other people, prepare for your own death, and so on. I don't mean to put you on the spot or anything, but a, a lot of the people I talk to on this podcast, we talk about sacred plants, ayahuasca, uh, ibogaine, which, um, at least from my perspective, seem to be 
burgeoning in in American society. Um, a lot of people, maybe a lot of the same people that we're talking about, are turning to these alternative traditions, trying to find meaning and and some sort of solidity in their worldview. And also, a lot of them are turning to them as a way to get out of addiction to painkillers and you know uh, opi- opioids and things like that, which are common. Uh, response to a lack of meaning in life. Um, do you have any experience with this stuff, or do you, do you talk about any of this in your book, which we are going to talk about here in a second? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know that I really do. Um, I mean, you know, I've <laughs> dabbled in the past, um, and there is absolutely something to the idea of the secular void. Right. That we're suffering from as well, right. and I am secular void. That's a good phrase too. I <laughs> okay. like that. There you go. From my family to yours. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's absolutely this feeling of still desiring ritual and meaning, right. but not having to, not having to believe in religion or not having to believe in any sort of organized religion. Right. right. And. People with death ask me about that all the time because they don't believe in anything. So the assumption is just, you know what, just cremate the body, just just get rid of it. It's just a shell. It doesn't mean anything. I'm a religious. Right. Bye. You know. It's, well, I don't know if that's true. I think that you do want to be with the body, and you do want something sacred, and you do want something ritualistic, and you don't have to believe in the heavens to want that kind of fundamental human interaction with a transition like that, a death or a marriage or a birth or whatever it is. Um, and I can absolutely understand why people would be turning to, to ways like you're talking about to enhance that experience and to, to feel like they're touching something larger than the kind of dull, colorless void of yeah. life without religion. Yeah. You have, you're not religious, are you? No. Have you... Do you have any sort of experiences that you might call um, transcendental or spiritual around your work? Um, yes, but I would say that they're primarily emotional responses. They're primarily—I mean, that I, I don't. I, I think that the same part of my brain that's activated when monks are praying or when. Um, you know, Buddhists are, are chanting or meditating or whatever it is. I think that the same part of my brain has been activated. Mm. Um, but that's, I mean, I know that's a really secular explanation, but I do believe there's a part in your brain that floods and that creates the sacred experience. Have you seen a lot of people die? I haven't seen a lot of people die. Right, no, I've seen a lot of poor, I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. post death. I, right. I would, I, um, I think that it's a very important, powerful experience. And without seeming morbid, I would like to be present at more deaths. Mm. Um, but yes, I'm very corpse-centric right. thus far in my career. Right. Yeah, my, my wife's a doctor. You, you haven't met her. I haven't met her, no. Um, but she was working in Africa for seven years and, um, you know, and then medical school and all that. And she's seen a lot of people die. And... Uh, it's just, in, I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone die. A lot of people haven't. And yeah. when we talk about the corpse being missing and not facing death, it is a cultural inheritance. 
You know, yeah. it's not, I, I'm not blaming anybody in our culture right now for the fact if they haven't seen a dead body or they haven't seen a death or they haven't thought too much about their mortality because it's just not part of the framework. It's not part of the value system. Yeah. The first dead person I ever saw, I had to kiss. That's my do, phone. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Let's answer it. Who is it? Uh, it's the first dead body you ever saw. <laughs> That's a really great ringtone. <laughs> that that could. There's so many times in this conversation already that that could have added levity. <laughs> <laughs> it, it tends to add levity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank God I'm not a pedophile. <laughs> Do you know the song? No. no oh, oh, it's a great song. It's Hey 19 by Steely oh. Dan. Um, yeah, the, the, the lyric is, uh, Hey 19, that's Aretha Franklin. She don't remember the queen of soul, right? And so he's, he's dating this 19 oh, year old girl and he's like in his thirties or forties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the planet is doomed. Hey, 19. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the chorus is, oh, we can't dance together. No, we can't talk at all. And uh, he says, uh, and then there's the, the background, the girls in the background saying, um, the, the Cuervo gold, the fine Colombian, make tonight a wonderful thing. <laughs> so without the tequila and the Coke... None of this would be possible, you know. It's a very ironic kind of love song. That's my perception of. I know very little about Steely Dan, but what uh, I do know, that's I would probably match that in like a Entertainment it, Weekly quiz where you had to match lyrics. So to smart people. They're they're just they're so intelligent, and you know their their music's. Be, a lot of people really hate Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. It's a strange thing. Uh, because, I don't know that I have any thoughts on yeah, Steely Dan. Well, you're too young. It's more like 70s, uh, right? Okay. And so, Didn't they win like Best Album Grammy like just a couple oh, years yeah. ago? Well, not not that I know of a couple years ago. I thought they did, and it was like this kind of like, what the hell? Steely Dan won the Best Album of the Year Grammy? Really? Yeah. I, no, I don't think they have any. Anyway, who... It's, Talk about a tangent. My <laughs> God. Hey, I'm going to go talk to Caitlin Doty about Steely Dan. <laughs> well, I am. It would be great if I was like secretly a Steely Dan expert. Yeah. Like I just had Steely Dan <laughs> trivia on lock. Yeah. Yeah. Is Steely Dan, that's not a single person. It's no, a group. it's two it's guys. Two people, right? Okay. And they're, then Ben. See, is, look how much I know about Steely Dan. Steely, I knew it wasn't no, just a guy named Dan. No. And Steely Dan, the name is taken from a William Burroughs. Uh, book Naked Lunch. Oh, of course. Uh, right. Where it's the name of somebody's vibrator. Oh. Yeah. Oh wow. So even how the naughty. name has some ironic yeah, how twist naughty. to it. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was saying the first dead body I ever saw was my <laughs> grandmother. We'll just jump right back into that. Put <laughs> that little steely Dan aside. Yeah. Uh, no, my is my grandmother's funeral. I was eight years old, and the tradition, you know, in the Catholic Church was to kiss the the corpse. So was she embalmed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, first dead person I ever saw, mm-hmm. and actually probably the first time I ever kissed a woman other than my own mother was kissing my dead grandmother. That should be the opening line of your new book. Yeah, well, I think maybe it will be a first the woman. The first anyway. woman I ever kissed was she the was corpse dead. of my dead grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some something there. Anyway, let's get to your book. Talking about books, it's a beautiful book. It's sitting here on the table in front of me. Um, I was I was saying to you, 
you know, I knew you had a book coming out, which is why I proposed doing this to, you know, help you move some, some books, get the, uh, not the Colbert bump, but whatever little bump you can get from <laughs> the me. Ryan bump. The yeah, it's, bump. it's real. It's real. Um, but uh, completely independently, I had been seeing stuff on Twitter and Facebook and just, you know, my normal sort of RSS feeds that people were talking about this book, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, but I didn't know it was your book. Same, one and, and the I, same. So, so you come over and hand me this book, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, two, two. I thought two separate worlds were colliding. You here. thought my book was a BS book. You thought that you were like, oh, it's a real publisher. <laughs> no, well, I never know. I yeah, no, that's true. Yesterday, I agreed to blurb someone's book. That's I think a self-published book. Mm-hmm. Um, How often do you get asked to blurb books? Once a week. Wow. And I. You know, the default answer is no, mm-hmm. because I can't, I don't have time to read them, and I'm not going to blurb something that I haven't read, you right. know, unless I, I know the person very well and, like, know, like, Dan Savage, like, mm-hmm. I'll blurb, you know, I'll blurb whatever the hell he wants me to blurb, <laughs> yeah. you know, because <laughs> His poems written on toilet paper. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Book of the year, graffiti. Dr. Christopher Ryan. Yeah, the best thing I've never read. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. You'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, the, the requests that I've gotten so far have been for books that I would never normally read. Like, I'm pretty strictly nonfiction. I read very little right. fiction, especially modern fiction, especially, like, crime, noir fiction. I just, I, I couldn't tell you how little I know about that right. genre. And if I'm asked to blurb it... I don't know that I would, even if it's like the best of the genre, I don't know that I would have an informed or positive opinion of it because it's just not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel as I'm sure you're about to, this is your first book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're jumping into this pool. I've been swimming in for a few years now. And, uh, you know, of course you're going to feel gratitude for people who helped you. You're going to feel gratitude that you even, like, got a book published, which mm-hmm. is an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm still riding that train pretty. Yeah. That gratitude train. Yeah. Well, you're going to be riding it, I hope, for years, you know. Um, but, uh, of course, that gratitude, then you want to help other people because right. people are reaching up to you, like, hey, can you give me a hand, you know, and help me get... and. So you want to do that, but then what you'll quickly find is that if you do that too much, then you've got no time to move on and write your next book or to, you know, to focus on the things you need to be focused on. I have a friend who's a, an author. He's written six or seven New York Times bestsellers, you know, super successful guy. And we were talking about this and he said, look, Chris, you just have to face the truth, which is that you will if you're lucky and talented and work hard and all that, you'll, you'll get successful by saying yes, but you can only stay successful by saying no. Yeah. And it's like, man, I don't want to, I I hate saying no because a few years ago I didn't have any opportunities, you know, nobody was asking me to fly over here and talk about this or help them with that or take a look and, you know, give me your insight. I was just some guy nobody ever heard of. And now suddenly everyone wants my time and I feel like I owe it to them. And I also feel like, Hey, it's fun. Like all these interesting people want me to work with them. But I've spent the last three years 
chasing my tail about getting TV shows started and, you know, doing a documentary and doing this and doing that and nothing ever fucking happens. Yeah. You know, so be careful with that. Well, I, I, I've already, the book actually has been by far the easiest, most tangible manifestation. It just seems, because I've also been on the TV loop and, yeah. and just met like a lot of really amazing people and also just a lot of terrible people yeah. who want terrible things out of you. Um, especially a woman in television has just been oh, really? pretty, they pretty want you to like, like, an, like an educational Could you do woman. this with a bikini? On? Yeah, or could we like get you a male co-host to yeah. prop you up or, you oh. know, any, you know, could you you would be better off hosting a cooking show or something like that. Well, I've um, had, uh, sorry to interrupt, but just to, sh- you know, there's balance. Cause I've had like, Hey, w- what if we got you like a really hot young porn star as your co-host? Right. Like let's sex this up, you know? Well, because everybody seems to, I'm sure with all the networks you're looking at too, everybody seems to have this idea of like males 18 to 35 and they like, you know, beard and bitches, but also science and information. So how do you give them all of those things mm. at one time? It's like, well, you know, maybe they could stand to see a woman giving them information. Or they could stand to see just a man, you know, without a hot blonde 20-something. Or maybe the hot blonde 20-something has an incredible mind. Right. And could provide the information herself. Right. So you're saying I don't I don't get to do my own show. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying I Caitlin, think you should you absolutely have your show. own show. You should absolutely have your own show. <laughs> I would watch the shit out of that show. I'd watch the shit out of it. Watch that shit out of that. television program. Um, yeah, yeah. Well I don't I don't want to get into a long thing of like, you know, me giving you advice from the embittered veteran. But, no, this is this is but, great. I mean I am um, I spoke to uh, who was it? I was at the American Librarians Association conference, and I was next to a guy on a panel who's also a you know big best-selling, sold lots of movies adaptations mm, right. book book guy, and he was sort of like, "Oh, so this is your first book? You're a good speaker. It's going to be good. This is the best it'll ever get." <laughs> I was <laughs> really? like, "Oh, geez," yeah. which is actually pretty helpful advice. Like the honesty is much appreciated. That like it's maybe yeah. never going to be as fun as like guys. I mean, I got I got my yeah. fucking nails painted to match the cover of the book because I'm so I have such like childlike enthusiasm for getting my ideas out there in book form. Okay, now I'm going to take your picture. I want okay. you to hold the book with those. Nails we're talking about because this book is coming out next week officially. Next week, yeah, Monday. So I'm going to release this on Monday or Tuesday. Okay, so awesome. So when people hear this, the the book will have. Oh wait a minute, what's happening here? I'm, I is it going to start playing Steely Dan? <laughs> so there you are. You look like you're in heaven with that light behind you. That's great. All right, that is going to go up on the website. When I remember, I love to take a picture while we're in the midst while of the we're interview, in the middle of so people can look. Um, okay, so let's talk about this. Smoke gets in your eyes. It's your first book. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of the blurbs sure. from the back. Okay, yeah, people who were willing to actually read it. And Caitlin, well, you didn't ask me. I would have done it. I know. I, sh- I should have actually. But, I mean, I'm not in that area, but I. I will be, you know, I'm writing civilized to death. Maybe yeah. the paperback if you need more. Uh, Caitlin Doty takes you to places you didn't know you wanted to go. Oh, that's nice. Fascinating, funny, and so very necessary. Smoke gets in your eyes, reveals exactly what's wrong with modern death denial. All right. Beautiful. 
that's best. Lovejoy, another one, alternate, alternately heartbreaking and hilarious, fascinating and freaky, vivid and morbid. Smoke gets in your eyes is witty, sharply drawn, and deeply moving. Like a poisonous cocktail, Caitlin Doty's memoir intoxicates and enchants, even as it encourages you to embrace oblivion. She breathes life into death. Holy shit. Both of those people are clearly better writers than I am. Man, that's good. That's really good. Now, I, I have had this book for all of four minutes, and... I just looked at the author's note, and uh, I didn't know this. Mata, who was Matahari? She was um, Matahari was a um, was a woman who they thought well, she was somewhat a spy, but really she was just a dancer and a courtesan and used this Orientalism during uh, World War Two right. to get ahead. Um, and she was an incredible dancer. World performer. War One. World War One. Yeah. yeah. Um, did I say World War Two? Yeah. Sorry. World War One. And she used, um, there's a really excellent um, biography of her called, I think, Matahari has some great, you know, subtitle. But she was um, this woman who used her sexuality and used the idea, she was very dark skinned and used the idea of the exotic. um, And people just loved her and hated her for that, the same way we kind of treat women's bodies today. And so the government wanted to use her as a spy, but there was all these different ideas that she was counterintelligence and that she was working for the French or for the British or for the Germans, um, when in reality she was just this kind of, you know, sexually empowered woman who was going around trying to make it work. And they, they took her down. Burn the, burn the witches. Burn the witch, yeah. So the author's note begins, uh, According to a journalist eyewitness account, Matahari, the famous exotic dancer turned World War I spy, refused to wear a blindfold when she was executed by a French firing squad in 1917. And, and then it quotes her, Must I wear that? asked Matahari, turning to her lawyer as her eyes glimpsed the blindfold. If Madame prefers not, it makes no difference, replied the officer, hurriedly turning away. Matahari was not bound, and she was not blindfolded. She stood gazing steadfastly at her executioners when the priest, the nuns, and her lawyer stepped away from her. And then you begin, looking mortality straight in the eye is no easy feat. Very nice. That's a powerful beginning. So what's the book about? The book is about... It's a combination. First of all, it's a memoir about the first year that I ever worked in the death industry, mm-hmm. um, about working at a crematory and showing in, up in, in Oakland, in Oakland yeah. yeah, and being really fascinated by death, having done medieval history in, in college and having all this academic interest in death, and then thinking that it would be great to actually see how people were working with real dead bodies in the field and having a lot of romantic ideas about what it was going to be, and then showing up and being like, holy shit. These are, these are body warehouses. This is what we're doing with dead bodies in our country. And then how that kind of spiraled into an obsession. Um, so it's also a lot of history, a lot of history of the American death industry, a lot of history of other cultures and the way that they deal with death. And a little bit of, at the end, the way forward and mm-hmm. how we can, we can shift our death practices to something a little healthier. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, was that your editor? Was the editor like, okay, now the final chapter has got to be upbeat. And, you know, <laughs> what do we do with all this? Well, uh, no, I kind of had that idea. Well, 
I don't know. I, originally, I had had wanted to make it more of a straight memoir, but I just had so much stuff for my own research and. Right. Um, I, I do. There is kind of an optimism to me mm-hmm. in general, which I don't. I'm not always happy with, but is is true. Like I do have optimism. Not every day, but most days, I have an optimism about our chances. You are American, after I am American. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm from Hawaii, which is kind of America, mm. but uh, yeah, I, I do have an optimism about our ability because what you learn from the history of the death industry is how quickly it changed to what it is now. Hmm. You know, this is really a 75, 100 year process. It was completely different before that. And so cultural memories are so short that I do think we have the same opportunity to flip it again Hmm. and get it back more to where it maybe needs to be. Where does it need to be? Just more presence of death? More presence, more more presence, more involvement, more sense of responsibility around death. Not saying, hey, this person died, I know, call the funeral director, have him picked up straight from the hospital, take him away, we'll get the ashes in the mail two weeks later. But instead saying, this is my loved one, this is my mother, my spouse, my partner, whatever it is, they're my responsibility, they're my community, their death and their dead body is my purview. What do you, I know I just noticed you using the pronoun they, Mm -hmm. um... And I have to say, when I when I'm watching the news and you know, uh, and they refer to um, you know like these people in the plane that was shot down, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and they're interviewing some of the Dutch people, um, the plane that was shot down in Ukraine, and they're interviewing some of the Dutch people, and and they're saying, um, you know, well, I just want to get my daughter home, or you know. I get a little weird about that. that. That that creeps me out a little bit because you're referring to a dead body and maybe even just parts of a dead body as your daughter. It's not your daughter. It is and it isn't. And it, it completely depends on cultural perception. But like I said, the dead body is sacred and profane. On the, on the one hand, it's it's rotting meat. In a way, and it's it's a thing that's it's gone. The person yeah. is gone. It's a it's a shell. It's a nothing. But the shell, the symbolic weight of that shell is heavier than the symbolic weight of just about any other inanimate object. But there isn't is. but isn't that you were talking about the the brevity of cultural memory and how things can turn on a dime and so on? If we're only talking about symbolic weight. Can't we then shift that symbolic weight away from the body and to, like, for example, in a lot of um, uh, cemeteries, instead of tombstones, there's a photograph of the person when they were younger and healthy. And you know. Well, that's what we've been doing, is we've been shifting the symbolic weight away from the body to, mm-hmm. like, just the memory, or we'll just have a memorial service, right. and we'll just think nice thoughts, and right. we'll drink punch, and listen to Steely Dan, and... Hey, hey, don't bring Steely Dan. Steely Dan. I mean, you know, in that, like, you know, we would would play Steely Dan at your funeral because (laughs) you liked Steely Dan and all, both of them. All right. Because it's it's two guys. I know that. Um, But I I think that's part of, I think that's a big part of the problem. I think part of the problem is death in the abstract and death in the, death that exists only in memory and in hypotheticals. And that there are these people who, work behind the scenes, you shrouded behind the scenes, mm. who do these, you know, alchemical 
things to take care of the body that we just don't want to know about. But the person who actually dies is just an abstract loss. And we know that they're gone, but we don't know what that means exactly. And that, that lack of tangible experience with the dead body is absolutely the problem. Well, do you think that having that tangible experience is solving the problem or no, 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 no. I think it's, I think it's a call to self-awareness for people. I don't think that like you put corpses back in culture and like you solve it and like everybody gathers around the corpse and gives each other a hug and society is fixed. I think that the corpse is the best way to open up self-awareness and we're lacking self-awareness right now. We're lacking self-awareness in our actions and how, I mean, I think probably your book will probably touch on a lot of this too. The way that we can go through life, move through life without a lot of sense about where our food comes from yeah. and where our medicine comes from right. and where our wars are coming from and when you and where our waste is going or coming from. Yeah. And when you don't have that sense, you're pretty unself-aware and the physical corpse is a big shift in that. It certainly was for me and other people that I've talked to have a similar experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're right. We, one of the pivot points in the book is, um, that in my book is that the word, um, in Spanish, aislar means to insulate, but it also means to isolate. Mm -hmm. And so in trying to insulate ourselves from every sort of discomfort, we end up isolating ourselves and feeling lonely and lost and so on. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm having a, a little. I'm, I'm stumbling a bit on the body as being the source or the, you know, the sort of focus because I feel like so many. Because I feel like, in a sense, life and death are abstractions. They are, but they're real enough that having a sense. I mean, you know, just saying, just saying that death is an abstraction. So. Doesn't that, in a way, kind of demean grief and demean the process no, of... No, 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 because love is an abstraction. I mean, show me love, you know? What's it look like? De- like love is more of an abstraction than death. You think so? Yes. Okay, well, let, let me for, play devil's advocate. Okay. Um, first of all, who dies? When, when a body dies, what's dying? The person's symbolic relationship to the world and their community and the people that they know. Right. So if, if we're starting with symbolic, then it's already pretty abstract, right? Well, it's, start, it's symbolic, but then the actual dead body is an incredibly powerful reminder of this person is dead. We're not just losing people into the ether. Well, maybe we are, though. I mean, I, cause, all right, here's what I'm getting at. Um, I mean, I understand that in sort of a spiritual perspective, yeah. but I don't think a lot of people have that mindset. And you could argue that shifting towards that mindset as a whole culture would be really helpful. Mm. Um, but I would think that the way that we're going, because you can put the dead body into the home in almost any religion or secular family and that body can mean something and can fit in with the worldview as opposed to trying to teach a different perception of what the body is and what death is and what transcendence is. I think that's a harder sell. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it could be. 
I'm, I'm just thinking like, you know, uh, I'm these days I'm reading a lot about uh, the fact, for example, 80% of our body weight after you extract the water is organisms that don't share our DNA. Mm-hmm. So when we say so-and-so died, like, okay, what the hell are we talking about? Because so-and-so, I, I, I use the pronoun, the singular pronoun I, to describe what is essentially a system, yeah. right? A community of organisms that we're choosing to call Christopher Ryan right now. Most of these organisms aren't the same organisms that were here six or seven years ago, you know, colonizing this body or even, you know, they're living and dying their own lives, you know, on this planet now that is Christopher Ryan. Right. And so and then, as I said earlier, if I get, uh, you know, Alzheimer's and I sort of lose awareness of everything that makes me me, I don't remember anyone I know. I don't have any relationships really um, with anyone in, in any lasting sense then I get confused as to where life is and where death is and all this. I don't things. disagree with you on any of that. I'm actually completely with you on the fact that we're just sort of all of these atoms gathered together for these tiny, short, inconsequential bursts of time and then yeah. shoot back out. And then that that's it. But part of bringing the corpse back is also accepting that this dead body doesn't have to be preserved it's sort of taking your time, uh, your two days with the body, uh, and then putting it in the ground to decompose, right. or put, giving it to animals to eat, or taking the next yeah. step where, where you say, I'm not going to chemically preserve the shit out of this body, and then put it in a heavy casket, and then put it in the ground because this body is so important that we have to keep it forever. Yeah. And saying, like, take your short two days of symbolic uh, So you're actually minimizing in some sense. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. It's saying, hey, take it as an important, you know, two or three days to symbolically engage with this corpse, understand your own death and mortality, understand that this person is no longer part of the community, and then let the body go do what the body is designed to do, which is decompose, which is go back and into the universe and be consumed by other animals. I read somewhere that, you know, these... I, I don't know if I have the numbers right, like ten, twenty thousand dollar caskets, the hermetically sealed, stainless yeah. steel, blah blah blah. Or maybe you even told me this. <laughs> I might talk, have yeah. that they explode sometimes. They can, yeah, because when you when you put a complete seal, the all these bacteria in the dead body are chomping away and they're producing gas. Yeah. So <laughs> if it's really humid and all of the everything, all the environmental conditions are right. They're producing gas and gas and gas and gas and gas, and it has nowhere to go yeah. outside of the casket, and then just microbe farts. Microbe, yeah, microbe farts blow up the casket. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a great headline. Yeah, microbe <laughs> news of the world. Microbe farts blow up the casket. News at five. That's great. So, uh, smoke gets in your eyes, and other lessons from the crematory. It, uh, Norton, uh, big time, serious publisher. Real book. This is a real, real book, book, ladies and gentlemen. I'm holding it in my hands. It's a beauty too. You said you you looked at other um, other cultures. What are some of the cultures? that you looked at one of my uh it takes a lot at this point to shock me with deaf cultures and Uh traditions um but one of the things that i I found an incredible book called consuming grief by a woman named beth conklin Uh and she was an she is an anthropologist 
and she studied this group called the Wari and oh, their yeah. indigenous tribe in, in Brazil. Uh-huh. And the Brazilian government came in and said, you can't be cannibals anymore if you want to live in Brazil. And of course, they're like, what's Brazil? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've lived here forever. Um, exactly. But they had they practiced mortuary cannibalism. And what that means is that they had this horror of putting the dead body in the ground to rot. And how the community felt better after a death was when it was totally gone. And the only way to make sure it's totally gone is to have the affines or the outer relatives of a family consume the body mm. and they made cornbread to go with it and they did all of these these things and they ate the body and it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience but they did it and they came together as a community and they pulled a i believe they pull a piece off every roof to show that to make the fire to roast the flesh and it also shows the dam the physical damage done to the community mm. and the family felt better because that person was gone and then the government came in and said you can't do that anymore and um you know it's kind of tragedy because they had this thing that really worked for them right they had this thing that that brought them actual comfort around death i love this caitlin you're saying that you are actually uh you know, openly in favor of certain kinds of cannibalism. If, if it works for your culture and yeah. it has great meaning and it fits within your worldview. And, and when you, and the reason I put them in there is because when you look at all the reasons they did it, you kind of go, that's a lot healthier than what we do. Psychologically. And let me throw this in physiologically. Because I, I don't know this particular case, but I would bet that they are living in a protein-poor environment. Mm. They probably... Are they a hunter-gatherer group? They are, but, but um, she was very clear in the book that it wasn't for protein, mm. or that it wasn't for... That, that, that they had enough of that, oh, okay. that it was purely for the reasons of, of I guess death mortality psychology Ah, it was all psychological because marvin harris who's a a very well-known anthropologist uh, wrote a book called cannibals and kings and the section on cannibalism he he sort of came up with a, a way of looking at cultures as if they were plants and like well of course this sort of culture would develop in this ecological place and a different culture would develop here right and so he in order to test this, he looked at cannibalism, and his idea was that, um, you know, and I never thought about this. I just thought some evil cultures were cannibalistic, and the good ones weren't. Totally. You know, yeah. But he went and he looked at um, the South Pacific because a lot of the societies in the South Pacific, um, in these islands, were cannibalistic, mm-hmm. and also the Aztecs and mm-hmm. the Maya and some other uh, groups. And what he found was that in the islands or the societies where cannibalism was widespread and it wasn't it wasn't this sort of thing where someone died it was you know killing enemies and wars and all that kind of thing um and also uh sacrifice human sacrifice um what he found was that they were places where they didn't have any domesticated animals that didn't compete with humans for food Mm -hmm. so like you can't raise dogs for meat because dogs eat meat right so you have to you can raise goats because goats will eat stuff that humans can't eat so that makes sense ecologically so these are places where there were no goats there were no pigs there was nothing like that that they could raise for protein so they ate the people they killed in war right Mm -hmm. whereas europeans with this superior smug attitude like oh you cannibalistic you know barbarians 
Europeans were killing far more people in wars. Mm -hmm. They just weren't eating them. Yes. You know, and so they considered themselves <laughs> yeah, superior. That's a great somehow. way to look at it. Yeah. yeah. Strange. Culture so strange. So speaking of these cultures in, in the Amazon, I know a lot of them have a complete prohibition against ever using a deceased person's name. Yes. Yeah, After. that's actually, that's um, oh, you talk worry about that? as well. Yeah, ah, they, okay. they, once the person is dead, their name shall not be spoken. And that's part of the getting rid of the person. Not only, uh, not only physically by consuming the body, right. but also that person's name is not spoken again. Yeah. And, um, you know, it really, it brought them, brought them a lot of comfort. And, and I think actually that the person, the family of the person who died also like had to burn down their hut and everything and the idea was that the community had to take care of them uh, and that is always what happened the community would rally around and help them rebuild their lives so each time somebody dies you have to reintegrate you have to double down right. and reintegrate into this group that you're a part of yeah do you think that's part of our our dysfunction around death as well the loss of community oh absolutely and that's kind of one of the that's one of the big ticket things that always comes up with, oh, of course we have so much direct cremation now because we don't have communities the way that we used to. And direct cremation is just cremation with uh, no services, nobody present, just take the body away, cremate it, you get the ashes later. And that does have a lot of, makes a lot of sense in the idea that, you know, a lot of people have like the weirdo uncle you know, who, who doesn't, every once in a while shows up at a family reunion, but doesn't really have, was never married, doesn't really have too many friends. And when he dies, you're not going to go gently wash his body and, you know, carry him to, on your back to the grave. Maybe you should, but you're probably not going to do that. You're too busy. You just call the cemetery or crematory in whatever city he's in and have it done for the lowest price possible. But if you are part of a community, because a lot of people still are part of a community. You know, I don't have family here in Los Angeles, but I have a community. I have friends. I have people who care about me. You can create your own community and take responsibility for the people who, who die in the community. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I was, um, this summer, Cassie and I spent a week on an island off the coast of New Hampshire called Star mm -hmm. Island. It's a Unitarian retreat center sort of and people go there every year forever like I met a woman who first went there in 1947 or something like that you know and she's been going there every year and, um, actually she was friends with Sylvia Plath oh uh, well yeah and and Sexton I think mm -hmm. yeah so there's you know interesting she she I did a podcast with her and she talked a lot about this sort of fascination with death of the the female poets that she was hanging out with from those years. But anyway, it, it, I was struck by this community and how, you know, even though it's only a week a year, there's a continuity that they've seen each other's kids grow up and they've, you know, they all mourn the loss. Oh, this year, so-and-so's not here and he didn't look real good last year. <laughs> and, you know, and you, we saw it coming and, you know, there there's something about spreading that sort of thing out through a community that is so essentially comforting. I think one of the great tragedies is that we are this intensely social animal and somehow we have we I don't I don't really understand how we've become so fragmented and strange. It's almost like 
and I know this is like oversimplifying things, but I sometimes feel like there's a conservation of quality of life principle. Like there's a certain amount of pleasure and happiness and love and all the stuff that, and the more people there are, the smaller a fraction each of us gets, yeah. you know? Because how many people are we supposed to have in our community? It's a very small amount. Well, there's Dunbar's number, which is the number of people that uh, an animal with our neocortex can keep mm-hmm. track of, right? Mm-hmm. That's like how many relationships you can actually really be engaged in, uh, which is about 150. Right. And um, yeah, Robin Dunbar, this biologist, figured out that there was some relationship between the development of the neocortex and the complexity of the social group of different animals particularly primates and so he sort of figured this out and then you know went and checked all these different primates and found this ratio and um and then they've done research with facebook friends and stuff like right. that and it's like okay you've got five ten thousand facebook friends but really you're only keeping track of 150 at the most and your pleasure really is diminished when there's too many yeah of them you know and I, yeah. I get i get i'm sure you get this too a lot of facebook messages and a lot of people who are reaching out or interested in your work and it's absolutely wonderful that they're interested in your work yeah. but it's also like just this onslaught of new people who are individuals and have their individual problems and their individual right. concerns and their individual gossip and their individual i feel this way about this group but not this group and it's like those kind of tribal politics writ large in yeah. a way that you just can't handle yeah. your brain just can't keep track of or or care about enough yeah or or you sacrifice other parts of your life to it right. you know um you've been a public person for quite a while though and you've had your youtube channel for years now right i guess like probably like f- almost four years yeah. yeah or three three years for the videos and then four years right. for so do you have a public page on facebook I actually, I have, I made my, I made my personal page. I have the Order of the Good Death, which is like the, my group, um, right. and that's a public page. And then I have Caitlin Doty that accepts followers and it's a little more, I kind of had to shut down. It's an author page. It's, yeah, yeah. It's sort of more, I don't, I post personal pictures sometimes or just kind of funny Facebook status, but it's definitely not the way that I would get across really emotionally resonant things or or try and engage on that level. Well, someone advised me and it was unfortunately after I'd already, you know, I started getting all these requests from people and I was accepting them like, yeah, why not? Just, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I had so many that I couldn't keep track of my cousins and my sister and, you know, people I know. So then I said, okay, uh, I guess I'm going to, unfriend all these people and then that pissed everybody off and so then with somebody um you know and i I just sent everyone an email like look i'm trying to make this just people i actually physically know and otherwise i don't have a place to you know um but then someone explained to me what you do is you change your name the spelling of your name for your personal account so people who are already friends they're there um, and then you use the true spelling of your name for your public account. Oh, so your name is like Christopher Rion. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that way you can maintain your private thing and people who read your book or see you on TV or whatever aren't going to find, you up, they'll look you up and they'll find your public page, which is what you mm-hmm. want. And then you can engage or not, depending how you feel about it, but they won't overwhelm your mm-hmm. personal stuff. 
word to the wise. Oh, okay. Well, see, yeah, you have, you're full of advice. I oh. appreciate it. It's not it's not mansplaining at all. It's oh. very, it's good. <laughs> it's crisplaining. It's crisplaining, yeah. <laughs> I that have sh- my own that special over... Screw civilized to death. Just crisplaining should be the next title. <laughs> yeah, should be, yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, what was it like writing this book for you? Oh, terrible. Terrible, no, good. I mean, excruciating. Yeah, excruciating. Yes, yeah. let's um, hear it. I mean, I, I'm not... I can write, but I don't think that I have people. People who identify, self-identify as writers seem to have this sort of err desire to put words on, even if it's difficult for them. They mm. can't not write, and uh. that is not where I am coming from. Um, I could, I really desperately wanted to tell this story, and I have wanted to do it for years, and I've been working on this book for like six years, but the actual process of writing is not very romantic for me. And even I tried getting cabins and taking time off of my life and, and, and doing that whole thing. And I would kind of just get to the cabin and be like, well, here I am. I can waste ex- time here in too. Ex- yeah, in existential <laughs> despair. I don't have the internet. But why is there cable TV at this in this uh, like weird-ass cabin in a ghost town in Nevada? I don't know, but I'm going to watch you know <laughs> true crime TV for five hours. Um, so it was it was relatively excruciating. But I am I am I guess the thing is like when you write, you're always happy to have written written yeah, it, yeah. and to have it out of my body and in physical form. That's how I feel. I feel like a book is like a pregnancy. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm at the point now where the baby is so big, I'm afraid I can't, I might not get it out. Yeah. You know, it, I, you could definitely over research, overthink. Yes. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, I better, I better crap this thing out yeah. pretty soon. Or it's going to be like one of those like 12 pound <laughs> butterball, butterball turkey baby. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that, you know, and it is, it's kind of a, um, it's a death, it's a, heroic death denial mechanism to it saying like um, hey I have this thing outside of myself now the same way a child will live is forever. it will live forever yeah. I could die tomorrow and you could still purchase smoke gets in your but eyes does that freak you out at all I mean because there's definitely that aspect to it I, I think about that a lot with um, you know I've got so many books in storage in Spain right now and when I was going through them and deciding which ones am I going to give away or, you know, leave in the street, which sucks in Spain because nobody reads in English. So nobody's going to, these are great books, you know, but nobody recognizes the authors or whatever. And I thought like, it's not only my own book. That's some sort of death denial. It's all those books I've bought saying, I'll I'll read that someday. I'm going to read that. When the fuck am I going to read that? You know, when I have a motorcycle accident and I'm stuck in bed for six months, fuck no, I'll just watch all the movies I haven't watched. You know, I'll do that. So, yeah, it is a death denial thing, but it's kind of freaky, too, to look at something and say, I made this, and it'll be here when I'm not. Yeah, but isn't that the same way things that people do with kids? Like, you have a kid, and your kid could be the kid that is the president, or you could just have a kid who, you know, works at Walmart or works at the factory and has a really solid life, and they'll live on past you, and... That's just it. Your your kid will be one of the fabric of society, yeah, woven in far past your existence, and maybe your kid will have a huge impact, and maybe it won't. Do you have any interest in having kids? I do not. I really don't. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I, you know, people, of course, always offer the advice, you're going to change your mind. Oh, fuck, I hate that. It's you a know, phase. When you, yeah, it's a phase. It's like, well, it's a phase that has been my whole life up to this point. Right. Like, I feel, I, 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 I find kids interesting, but I cannot imagine. And I don't, I'm, I very strongly believe that you should not produce a child unless you're 1,000% ready to dedicate your emotional and physical energy for the next 18 plus years to that child. If you have hesitations about that, or like you don't think you want kids, you shouldn't have kids just because society is interested in you reproducing. Well, this is another one of these things where I think we've shot ourselves in the foot or painted ourselves into the corner, pick your hackneyed phrase. Uh, You know, we we've created a situation where what you said is true. If you're not a thousand percent willing to sacrifice your entire fucking life to someone else for 18 years, don't do it. Right. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's you're not, supposed to have that community. Remember right, the community right, right, right. support. Yeah, yeah but kids, I wouldn't, so have, what? I wouldn't have community support. I mean, I have friends who would probably watch it, but no, I don't have th- my No, that's what I'm saying. No, I'm saying we've created a world in which that's what we face Yeah. if you're going to have a kid. Just like when someone dies, we face this alone. Whereas if you have a kid, it's like, oh, I've got to do this myself for 18 years. Well, what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if, what if, what if, what if? But in these hunter-gatherer societies in the Amazon that we're talking about, you have a kid. Everybody's having kids. Doesn't matter. Oh, the kid dies. Well, that's too bad. We'll have another one. Oh, the parents die. That's all right. That's all right. We'll take care of the kid. You know, we're all related. We all share food anyway. You know, whatever. That's things should be easy like that. You know, and so the the terrible repercussion of that is that when parents face this horrible challenge, horrible. You know, horrible little kids. Uh, face this challenge and they feel like they fail and they freak out and they scream or they hit the kid or they, you know, ah, they feel like failures because they're supposed they, to be able to do yeah, that. And they feel they the full burden yeah. of the child in the way they wouldn't in yeah. the kind of society you're talking right. about. So you end up creating these resentful little monster kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of okay. course, I mean, neither of us have children. You don't have children, right? Hell no. Right. So it's funny now we're, from the bully pulpit here. But although I think that we've probably gotten enough from the opposite direction of here's why you're wrong about not having kids and you'll change your mind. And well, people aren't saying that. that to me anymore. One of well, the nice also, things. You're also a man. And I'm 52. Yes. So yeah, the, the whole, it's just a phase you're going through thing, sort of that, that mm-hmm. starts to peel off in the thirties. I think people don't actually challenge me that much. I shouldn't, I shouldn't pretend that they challenge me that much. I think because I have such a public career, people are for some reason more, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but they're more willing to be like, oh, she's made that choice. Oh, uh, she's a professional woman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what's happening next week? For the book yeah. launch? Um, all sorts of things. I start the, the tour. You're doing a tour? I'm doing a tour, yeah. Is your publisher paying for it? <laughs> yes. The what? The publisher is paying for it. What? Yeah. Isn't that what they do? I got no book tour. I got no advertising. I got no nothing. I didn't even get a fucking kiss on the cheek. I have to tell you, W.W. Norton is well. what's up. They have, been, they have been absolutely incredible. Do you aspiring authors out there, avoid Harper. And, and do everything you can to get on W.W. Norton. Because they're independently owned. They're owned by their employees. The, oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that. So all of their money is not Comcast money. Or you know if they if a Rupert book Murdoch yeah Rupert money. Murdoch yeah. money if a book fails on their watch 
they all lose. So they're all incredibly invested in making sure that a book is a success. Right. How was your experience with your editor? Of course, you're going to say wonderful. It was, he was, it was magical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It was totally magical. He's his name is Tom Mayer. He's, um, Kind of, I mean, he's he's in his early thirties now, but he's kind of a wunderkind. Like he's risen through the, risen through the ranks incredibly right. fast because he's just. And the reason that I wanted to work with him so badly is that when the first time I met him, I was like, "You are not going to pamper me at all," and he absolutely didn't. I think there was one. What was my favorite quote of his? It was like, "This manages to be um, overwritten yet underinformative." Nice. And I was like, "Sweet, needed to hear that. Yeah, let's yeah. let's fix it." My favorite is, um, I cannot begin to tell you how much I hated reading this section. <laughs> great, yeah, and that's a great, like that's a good editor, I think. Yeah, you know, I don't need to, I don't want to send my book out there in a half in a baked. sad half baked yeah. state because yeah. someone wanted to support me right. and my dreams of right. writing a book. You yeah. know, I want someone who says no. We want this book to sell. We want it to be compelling. We yeah. want it to be tight. Yeah. 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 Tight's what it's all about. Get the unnecessary shit out of there. Yeah. Don't waste people's time. So you're going on a book tour. I'm already resentful. Where are you going? <laughs> I'm going to, uh, it's going to start in LA. Um, it's skylight and then, uh, going to Seattle, New York, Boston, San Francisco, Calgary, Madison, and then I think Chicago. Fantastic. Yeah. That is going to be fun. And what is that, like two weeks? No, it's like, well, this is over like, I think, a month. Oh, okay. So, so you're going to fly it out. And yeah, flying it out. Oh, it's not yeah. all, all mm-hmm. okay, right? You're not in the back of a van with some No, parties. no, no, no. No. It's not like me and <laughs> Couple my. Couple of guitars. Me and my, me and my ska band or something. <laughs> Even Steely Dan. Yeah. Um, very cool. So, do you have a where's the website where people can go to see the dates for those? Yeah, um, it's uh, orderofthegooddeath.com backslash smoke gets in your eyes. Okay, yeah, good. That's fantastic. Your life is going to be completely different from now on. Oh, we'll yeah, it doesn't yeah. feel, I feel it's like gonna hit. this is gonna hit rumblings it. of it, but it's still pretty much the same. So, but people keep telling me that in very like hushed tones. And people I respect too, so I'm yeah. ste- I'm steely danning myself. Is um, speaking of steely Dan Savage, is he going to have you uh, on the podcast to talk about? He that? he he said he was. We haven't uh, good. pursued well, that. Well, when you're in Seattle, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put something together with I him. Will, um, I talk to his husband on Twitter all the time, so yeah. I'll try and uh, let me see if I wonder if I could get um, Joe Rogan interested to have you on. He, he's he reaches hundreds of thousands on his yeah, podcast. Yeah, I know he's him. My um, my best friend all the way from high school. Her husband is like a huge MMA freak. Right. So he is like they they just think that Joe Rogan. Yeah, he's got know. a real cult following. Yeah, and, yeah. Because he's very smart and um, but in a sort of street wise mm-hmm. kind of you know, and he does all these other things. You know, right. he's very uh, eclectic and and. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, you know a lot of people who know him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see if we can get word to him. Um, anyway, really, this is wonderful. And I wish you, I don't know what I wish you. I was going to say <laughs> I wish you every success. But, you know, in my experience, and I don't want to sound, you know, like this sort of whiny author, but I wrote a book and ended up with a business. Yeah. You know, and I never wanted to be a businessman. Yeah. And the business doesn't make enough money that I can hire someone to do the business. Right. So you sort of, I mean, in my case, you sort of end up like, fuck, I, 
I, you know, what is all this? I got to do this. I got to, you know, feed the Twitter monster. I got to feed the Facebook monster. I got to. Yeah. And with, with me, I just want to be an advocate. I want to be an advocate for the things for death acceptance for the corpse for different death practices and that's what I want to do and there is a lot of issue of like feeding the Twitter monster and doing these things that do help the advocacy but also are just basic upkeep of the the lifestyle or the or the brand which is yeah. a vile word oh but, but you're going to be hearing it more and more oh, let me tell you oh, yeah. oh fantastic and you're going to have more TV sharks circling you in the water too you know because you're going to be media a lot more now mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting well anyway listen uh, I wish <laughs> you I wish note. you whatever the hell makes you happy that's so, a great thing to say I'll take that yeah all right thanks for doing this thank you so much for having me. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we ever know Sit for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away We're gonna die one day Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.